Our scripture today is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to grab the one that's in the rack in front of you and turn to page 837. That's the passage that we're looking at this morning. And also, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have a number of these blue paperback Bibles out in the lobby on the black table. Uh, Take one with you when you leave. All right, so we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark. And just to kind of step back a little bit and and get a sense for where we are in the letter, uh, what's been happening in chapter 1 is that the, the popularity of Jesus has been increasing greatly. It's been spreading. His fame is spreading throughout the entire region. And so, you know, Jesus has come. He's been baptized. He's been tempted by the, by the devil. He's begun to preach. And it's to the point, as we saw by the end of chapter 1 last week, that he can't even really go into these towns anymore because people are just looking for him. They're coming after him. They want healing from him. Here, though, beginning in chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 6, we see increasing opposition to Jesus. So, you've got these two things happening at the same time. His popularity is increasing among the people, but there's also opposition coming from the religious leaders. This is the first of five episodes or interactions between Jesus and these religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, that take place between chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 3, Verse 6, and in particular, there's two things that will happen in this text that we're looking at this morning that will ultimately, you know, kind of set Jesus and these religious leaders on a collision course that would ultimately lead to the cross. Uh, The first is something that Jesus claims to have authority to do, and the other is a title that he gives himself. He's got authority to forgive, and he claims to be the Son of Man. They don't really see that, though, here. The scribes don't, the Pharisees, uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the people, even the paralytic and uh, the men who are carrying him, they don't really see all that Jesus says about himself, about who he is, and ultimately about what he came to do. The, the scribes and the crowd, even at the end, didn't really know who they were dealing with. And the paralytic and his friends didn't really know what the paralytic 
needed. And we're the same way. I mean, when we come to Jesus, we think we know what we need him to heal in us. And we think that his desire is to do nothing more than heal what we think him to need, to need heal what we need him to heal in us. Let me try that again. Ooh-wee. All right? We think we know what we need Jesus to heal in us. And we also think that's really all Jesus cares to do. Hey, that flows a little bit better. Okay? But what Jesus offers us, this passage tells us, is so much more. He offers to do more than we ask precisely because of who he is. The that you may know in verse 10 of chapter 2 is so central, it's so important to this text. We read this text, we're, we're rightly captured by the narrative and the, the faith of the friends and the, uh, the, the objection of the scribes and, and the reaction of the crowd. But what we miss is really the central phrase, the central thing is what Jesus says, especially when he says, that you may know. So this text forces us to consider what we think we know about Jesus and what we think he came to do. Do we know who Jesus is? And what do we really want from him? Do we want what we think we need? Or do, do we want what he knows we really need? What we must know from this passage is that Jesus is the ultimate healer. Jesus is the ultimate healer. And so we must therefore look to him for the healing that only he can provide. But to do that, we need to understand our own brokenness. We need to see how deep it goes. And we also need to understand what it means uh, for him to bring healing. What kind of healing does he bring? And then third, we need to understand what it means for him to be who he says he is, the son of man. Such a pregnant title that's filled with so much meaning. So three things this morning. First, the brokenness that we bring. Second, the healing we're given. And then third, the identity of the healer. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before this text, before you this morning, um, and before this text that you've preserved for us down to this very day. We pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would work through your Word to accomplish your purpose in our hearts. Lord, we pray especially that you would enable us to see your Son, our Savior, Jesus, more clearly that we would be, have a greater vision for the healing that he seeks to bring in our lives and in this world and not be limited by our own imagination of the best that things could be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the brokenness that we bring. And let's go back and take a look at the first uh, four five verses of this text. Let me read it for us. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So let's just stop right there. What's going on? So Jesus has probably snuck back into Capernaum. Right, this is home base for him. He was staying at Peter's house. The text that we read and as we looked at chapter 1 has him in Capernaum and then leaving, going out to the wilderness in order to spend time in prayer. The 
the disciples come out to him to find out what's going on. They see the leper. They heal the leper. The leper goes back into town and Jesus stays out in the wilderness. And so probably what's happening here is Jesus has kind of made his way with the disciples back into Capernaum trying to get in without getting a whole lot of attention stirred up and they go back to what is most likely Peter's house and, and Jesus is in the house teaching because inevitably people found out that he was there. Word spread. Now, homes in this day and age were, you know, one-story homes that were essentially one big room. Uh, this home, um, you can actually see the foundations of it if you go to Capernaum, uh, probably held, <clears throat> seated about 50 people. And so that's what's going on. Jesus is teaching. The room is packed. And then picking up in verse 3, and they came... Bringing, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. All right, so that seems a little strange. What's going on there? Well, again, these homes in the first century, the, the roofs were made by laying uh, timbers or by laying, um, you know, uh, logs maybe or limbs of trees across the, 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 the roof, right? Across the opening. They're kind of lined up close together and then they were filled in with, with mud and clay and thatch and packed down so that it really was a very stable structure. In fact, at night, uh, people in the home would often go up on top of these roofs and sleep because it was so hot in that environment and how nice to be up on the roof in order to sleep. All right, so how did they get up there? Well, there was a staircase typically along the side of the house. And so here come these, this crowd, you know, presumably more than four men. They came, four men carrying. So some crowd of people with four men carrying this paralytic come to Peter's house. They see there's no way they're going to get in through the door. And so they hatch a plan. Let's dig through the roof. So they take the man up the staircase, they go over onto the roof, and they begin to claw their way through the roof. Now put yourself in the room for a second. All right, you're sitting there, you're listening to Jesus teach, clearly captivating teaching. And then at some point, you know, dirt begins to fall. What is going on? Who's up there? And then there's light that begins to peer through. And a couple logs get lifted out of the way. A couple of these tree limbs are moved. And then you see these, I don't know, four faces of these guys look down through the roof at you as you're looking up at them. And then their faces disappear. And maybe a few more limbs get moved out of the way. And then all of a sudden, this mat gets lowered down with this broken man, this paralytic, who's lowered down to the ground in front of Jesus. I'm guessing you could have heard a pin drop. What will Jesus do? Well, before we look at what Jesus does, let's ask ourselves what we learn about brokenness from this passage, from this beautiful narrative that we've seen up to this point. And the thing I think we, we learn, one of them, is that we are broken people in a broken world. We all are broken people in a broken world. We, we look at the paralytic in this text, or we look at people that we know who are profoundly broken. They can be seen to be broken in, in body or in soul. We see their brokenness, and we're tempted to think, at some level, rightly, man, I'm, I'm so thankful I'm not 
you know, as broken as that person. And at one level, of course, we should be if we're not as afflicted as some people are. But, but we may think that and, and not really see how broken, in fact, we really are. But then at some point we get sick or someone hurts us or our past catches up with us or life simply isn't going the way that we imagined. We face disappointment and eventually the reality of our mortality sets in. And then we look around. You know, we read the news. We hear our neighbors' stories. We see that, you know, where there was once a, a husband and a wife and some children, now there's only the wife and the children because the husband is gone. Maybe he's left, maybe he's died. We see the brokenness in our society. We see the brokenness of the good creation that God gave us. And hopefully, hopefully we realize something. We are all broken people in a broken world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We're all on a mat of some kind. We're all on a mat of some kind. We are all in desperate need of help. This man and the men carrying him knew that that man, they knew two things. First, they knew that the man's need was desperate. The paralytic's need was desperate. The man on the mat had a desperate need. And they knew that Jesus could meet that need. They knew that Jesus could heal. So we, we need to see, all of us, that we're broken people in a broken world, and we also need to go to Jesus with our brokenness. There's nowhere else to go. Go to Jesus with your own brokenness. If you're here this morning with a profound sense of your own brokenness, either you're here for the first time, you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not even sure what that means, or you've been coming for years, you've been going to church for years, you put your faith in Jesus Christ a long, long time ago, and you still have this profound sense of your brokenness, which we all ought to have a sense of. Go to Jesus with your brokenness. Go to Jesus with your need. Don't hold anything back. Especially don't think you've got to clean yourself up in order to go. You've got to set things right. You know, you've got to get the house in order, morally or spiritually speaking, so that you can present yourself to Jesus. There's this beautiful hymn, Just As I Am, that captures the approach that we all need to have as we go to Jesus just as we are in all of our brokenness. So in your brokenness, go to Jesus, but take others with you. Take the brokenness of other people with you to Jesus. You see that with these friends. Could it be just four random guys, but probably they were people that the paralytic knew, and, and they had deep concern for the paralytic. Are we like them? Are we willing to be stretched like they were? Are we willing to risk embarrassment and perhaps cause offense? By bringing broken people we know to Jesus. These guys literally clawed their way to Jesus with their friend. Will we at least persist in prayer? 
I, I know it's hard. I know it takes a lot of courage. I know it's hard to go to someone and say, come with me to Jesus. Come with me to church. Come with me to his word. Let's read the Bible together. Let's pray together. Let's talk about ultimate reality together. But will you come with me to Jesus? Because I know Jesus is who you ultimately need to bring you healing that's greater than you can imagine. But will you at least persist in prayer? Bring that person with you, as it were, before the throne of God in prayer. We are all broken people in a broken world. We have nowhere to go in our brokenness but to Jesus. So bring your brokenness to Jesus and bring your broken friends with you. He will give you all the healing that you need. So let's turn, secondly, to the healing that Jesus gives us. Take a look in verses 5 through, five through 12. Let's read that. Verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? I'm sorry, which, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. They lower this man down. He's a paralytic. Everyone can see what this guy really needs, except Jesus, who can see what this guy really needs. It seems like a non sequitur. Son, your sins are forgiven. But it makes sense when you understand what people in that day and age believed. They often believed that there was a direct correlation between a person's sin and a person's sickness or suffering. And so if you've read Job, you recognize that that was one of the, you know, errors that Job's friends had. You know, Job's comforters who did the right thing by not saying anything for seven days and then opened their mouths. And what came out was essentially this, Job, you know that God is just, and so confess your sin. God would never cause you to suffer if you haven't sinned. You're suffering, so clearly you've sinned. So fess up, Job. That was a common way of thinking. If you're suffering, it's because you've sinned. You see that with uh, Jesus' disciples in John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples come across this man who's been blind from birth. He was born blind. And the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. And Jesus said, neither. This happened so that the power of God might be displayed. Jesus breaks this connection, this direct correlation between a person's sin and that person's suffering. However, passages like Psalm 103, which we read as part of our profession of faith this morning, show that there is a link between sickness and suffering in the world and sin in the world. Because the forgiveness that God gives also brings healing. So in Psalm 103, verse 3, which we read earlier, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. These things, they go together in Scripture. 
And Jesus is going to teach us that here in this passage. He forgives the man's sins, and then he heals them, heals him. So what do we know? We know from the Bible that not every sickness is caused by sin, but all sickness and suffering in the world result from the reality and the presence of sin in the world. So what was Jesus doing when he says, back in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. He's not only saying something about who he is, God. He is also saying something about what he came to do, and that's deal with sin. Because it's only if sin is dealt with that ultimate healing can be affected. This man and these men and this crowd of people that came with them and what everyone was watching expected was for Jesus to do the thing that they thought he needed to do. And in saying, son, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is saying, I'm going to do the thing you really need so that you can ultimately have the thing you think you need, which is healing. The healing the paralytic thought he needed fell short. The healing the paralytic thought he needed was only temporary. The paralytic would die. If the paralytic did not have his sins forgiven and was only healed physically, that paralytic would die and then perish. Jesus offers forgiveness and healing as a preview of the kingdom that as it comes, people experience forgiveness and the promise of ultimate and eternal healing. What the man needed was more than healing. He needed forgiveness. We think we know what we really need. We come to church either with real sickness and we think, God, what I need you to do is heal me. If you would heal me, then I could be happy. The paralytic, I'm sure, thought if I could walk again, I would have all that I need. And Jesus said, you have no idea how much you need. And we come to church with our idea of what we need And we think, Jesus, if you will just meet this need, if you'll just heal this relationship, if you'll just heal this hole in my heart, if you'll just heal this hunger that I have for success or whatever it may be, if you'll just heal these areas of my life, I'll have all that I need. And Jesus says, I want to offer you so much more than you need, than you realize you need. I want to offer you what you truly need. Jesus says, I want to do more than you think I can do. I want to give you what is primary, forgiveness, in order to heal you eternally. That's why the healing that false teachers offer, which we, you know, you see them on TV, you, you, you read about them, and you know, the Joel Olsteins and the Creflo Dollars and the Joyce Myers and, and, and uh, the Bill Johnsons and countless others. That's why the healing, quote-unquote, that they offer is so tragic. Jesus says, I want to give you what is primary so that you can have healing eternally. False teachers say, I want to give you what is secondary, healing, that you can only have temporarily, if it were to take place in reality at all, as long as you have enough faith. What does the Bible say about healing? Well, let's look at a passage real quick. James chapter 5. If you're using the, uh, the Bible in the rack in front of you, it's on page 1013. 
James chapter 5 is such an important passage for understanding how the church, how we as Christians should think about, uh, about healing. And at the risk of trying to pack two sermons into one, I'll make this, I'll make this brief. So you will be thinking he could go so much deeper, and uh, you're right, I could, but that would be another sermon, and you know, we got to eat at noon. So chapter 5 of James, verse 13, we're just going to look for 13 through 15 uh, real quick. So verse 15, or th- verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? And the word suffering there is a word that has to do with all manner of affliction, emotional, physical, whatever the case may be, relational, all manners, the catch-all phrase. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So there, right off the bat, when we realize we're broken, James is saying, pray. Also, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And then we come to verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What is happening there? Well, there is here a call to prayer for healing. For God to heal. Either temporally or eternally. And ultimately, of course, with sins forgiven, eternally. And so this person is so sick they have to call on the elders, so they're not able to go. They're in a bad spot. They're in a bad place. They could be dying. And so they call the elders, and the elders come and pray over this person. They anoint this person with oil. Oil was used medicinally. You know, when you read about the, um, the, the, uh, the Good Samaritan binding up the wounds of the person he came across the road and found in that, in that story, you know, there was oil and wine that was used. The, oil, the wine was used to, as an antiseptic, cleanses wounds, and the oil was used to, to kind of smooth them over, to soothe them. It was used medicinally, but ultimately it pointed to the glory and the anointing ultimately to heaven. The oil being poured out in the Old Testament was ultimately a symbol, not so much of physical healing, but of the ultimate healing that comes in Christ. And so to anoint this man with oil was it perhaps this person to, to treat their wound, but, but ultimately it was to point to something that would happen as they looked to Jesus for salvation. When it says the prayer of faith will save the sick person, that key word there is important, save. So it's in a temporal sense or it's in an eternal sense. It's the salvation of the person that is being pursued. So yes, they're to pray for the person's healing. But ultimately, here even in James, what they're looking for is this person's eternal healing. This person may be sick because they've sinned, and so there ought to be an opportunity to pray for forgiveness of sin. Also, when we're sick, sometimes we realize, man, I I need to, I'm coming to my senses. My brokenness is ultimately my being cut off from God and my sin, and so I pray for forgiveness. There's the offer of that here as well. What the Bible gives is in James With Jesus back in Mark chapter 2 and the healing ministry of Jesus throughout the Gospels is a preview of the eternal and lasting healing that is to come with the kingdom. 
And so, yes, what we see in Mark is the healing of the paralytic by Jesus. What we see in James is an opportunity, a call to pray for God to heal a person who is sick. But even as we pray for that healing, we long for and look to the eternal healing that comes to all those whose faith is in Jesus Christ. The prayer in James chapter 5 captures both of those. And Jesus displays both of those in this account back in Mark chapter 2. You've probably heard of Johnny Erickson Tata. If not, I encourage you to just Google her and you'll read her story. You'll, you'll um, be able to perhaps pick up some of her books. Johnny Erickson Tata was uh, 18 years old. She'd been graduated from high school for a month and she had a diving accident and she, she broke her neck and she became a paralytic. And she went to all these kinds of false teachers. Just have enough faith, Johnny, you can be healed. And after her third trip to a healing service, she fell deep into despair because, of course, she hadn't been healed. She'd been a paralytic for over 50 years now. What she did come to realize, however, was that God wanted to do something deeper in her than she could imagine now before he healed her for all eternity on the last day. Johnny writes this, I learned that the core of Christ's plan is to rescue us from sin. Our physical aches and pains and broken relationships aren't his ultimate focus. He cares deeply about these things, but they're symptoms of the chief problem in this fallen world. God's goal is not to make us comfortable. He wants to teach us to hate our transgressions as he grows our love for him. She goes on and says, does God miraculously heal? Sure he does. But in this broken world, it's still the exception, not the rule. A no answer to my request for a miraculous physical healing has meant purged sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, and a hunger for his word. And then she ends with this line, Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster, that is my wheelchair. Jesus offers to Johnny and he offers to you so much more than you realize you need. False teachers come and they offer that which is secondary and that which is temporary. Jesus comes and offers that which is primary, forgiveness of sin, so that you can have healing for all eternity. The healing found in Christ alone in these passages, Jesus does what seems to be the harder thing in order, to in order to prove that he can do the deeper thing. Jesus deals with what's primary, not secondary, so you can have not what's temporary, but what's eternal. Let's turn third to the identity of the healer. You see this in verse 10 and in verse 12. Look at the first part of verse 10. Jesus says there, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now let's just stop there. We just look at that. 
Jesus says he is the forgiver of sins. The scribes don't accuse him of blasphemy because he said, I have the authority to heal. They accuse him of blasphemy because he said, I have the authority to forgive sins. That's authority that only God had. They heard him saying that. And they were right, according to their perspective and their understanding, to accuse what seemed to be this man of blasphemy, of saying something that only God could say, of claiming to do something that only God had the prerogative to do. And then Jesus goes on to use this phrase, son of man, that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And that was such a, a, a pregnant title, a title full of meaning and significance. At one level, that phrase, son of man, was used in the Old Testament as just a way of referring to people that are human. Just a way of talking about human beings. But then there's Daniel 7. And you go back and read Daniel 7, and you see there this vision that Daniel has of one who is the son of man who will come on the last day, who will rule over all creation forever, who will judge sin, and who will bring redemption to God's people. Fast forward to Mark chapter 14. Jesus is before the chief priests and the elders, and he's directly asked if he is who he says he is. And Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And the chief priest tears his robes and he says, we don't need anything else. He's claiming to be God. That's happening here already in Mark chapter 2. They don't see it. The crowd doesn't realize it. Nobody gets it. You know why? Because in verse 12, they were all amazed. They glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. But they did not fall down at his feet and worship him. They didn't know who was before them. And they didn't know all that he had come to do. But Jesus was saying it, and he was doing it right there in front of them. So let's not miss it. Let's not miss what Jesus is saying here that we must know. He is the Son of Man. He is the one who can only do what God does because he is God in the flesh. That is forgive sin. What does it mean for us that Jesus is the Son of Man? It means that He is the one who will bring not just healing to our bodies one day, but ultimately the restoration of all creation. We come to Jesus looking for just a little bit of help in this life, and Jesus says, I want to offer you more than you could possibly imagine. Even if it means in this life, you suffer yet a little bit longer. My friends, may it be that as we come to Jesus, we are looking that he would do that which is primary in us, forgive us our sins, that we might have that which is eternal, restoration of our bodies, restoration of all creation, and not come to Jesus for less than he wants to give us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come before you this morning, we are reminded from this text that though from our perspective the harder thing to do was to forgive uh, the, the, was to heal the man we know from the perspective of the cross that the harder thing to do was in fact to forgive his sins or Jesus you went to the cross you the son of man 
was our suffering servant, that we might know forgiveness of sin now and the healing that you offer for all eternity. Or would you lift up our hearts to look to you in faith, knowing that you will give us more than we so often seek by dealing with our deepest need, reconciliation with you, and then offering the promise of of resurrected bodies and a restored creation in fellowship with you and all your people for all eternity. You offer us so much more than we could dare to dream. Help us to be people who will open ourselves up to the work you need to do deep in us in order for that to be a reality in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.